So um, one of the things that I had to come to grips with in my life is <clears throat> that I'm a tiny dog man. Um, I used to think that I wanted a big dog. I used to think that I wanted uh, a big Neapolitan Mastiff. That was kind of my, the dog that I was really shooting for. I'm a big guy. I need a big dog. Really communicate my power to people when I walk that dog. Nothing like a 250-pound dog on a leash. You're just walking that thing around. You look like your boss. But uh, the truth is, I'm a tiny dog man. I've had a Maltese Poodle mix. It was my favorite dog I've ever had. He was six pounds of power. Um, and now we have a Chihuahua Poodle mix, which is um, just unbelievably ridiculously cute. Um, but again, also right in that six-pound range. Um, and so I, I love these little dogs. I don't know what it is about them. I don't know what it is about me that wants tiny dogs in my life, but that's who I am. Um, and so we kind of made the decision. We were going to go to the pet store yesterday. It was just me, my wife, and my youngest daughter. Uh, she loves animals, and so we kind of wanted to do something special. So we're going to pop into Petland. We're going to pet some dogs, and we're going to get out of here. And so as we're going, we're like, hey, no throwing a fit, Megan. We can't, we're not buying a dog. You can't throw a fit. You can't get upset. We're not buying a dog today. We're just going to look. We're just petting a dog. You know, we're not doing this. And eventually, I finally told my wife, I said, hey, babe, I got to go. I got to go to the car. And she was like, why, why, what, we got stuff we got to get for Colonel. I was like, no, I, we got to go to the car because if I stay in this store for another few minutes, we're leaving with that dog. We're going to spend nearly three grand and I'm going to walk out of here with a dog that I don't want, that we don't have time for. Um, but I almost got suckered into it, even though I'm the one that set the vision. We talked about it in the car. We all committed to it. I almost came. And I think it's an experience that we all have from time to time where we, we all agree, we're all on the same page, we're all kind of dialed in. Um, you, may, you may be at work, it may be in your family, it may be with friends, um, maybe you've had the privilege to get to serve with another group of volunteers, and you commit. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody knows what we're about. And all it takes is one person who begins to pull in a different direction. And all of a sudden, you've got this friction that's coming in. You've got this challenge that's coming in. And that's what we're going to kind of look at this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, if you've got your Bible app, you can open it up. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 5. Um, if you've been joining us as we've walked through this series, we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. Um, it is just a really important book in Scripture because it's about kind of the rebuilding and uh, kind of the reestablishment of, of God's uh, people in, this, in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem. Uh, what's happened is that the, uh, the people have been uh, kind of invaded, taken over by Persia. The walls are torn down. The people are taken into exile. And in this situation, Nehemiah finds himself in a privileged position. He's a cupbearer to the king, uh, which sounds like um, kind of a nonsense title. It sounds like, like I'm the head butler. But it was really the person who was kind of the head of the estate. It was really um, not quite the right hand, not right, quite the second in command, but pretty close. He's in this very influential position. Um, he helps to get to control things. He's really kind of the, almost the executive assistant to the king. And in that position, he realizes that the city of Jerusalem is, is in uh, disrepair. And it's, in, uh, it's, it's kind of in this degraded state where the walls are torn down. And again, for us, it, doesn't, it sounds weird. There's no walls around Wichita, so we don't really think about it. But in the ancient world, you weren't a city if you didn't have walls. You were a region, you were maybe a town or a village, but you weren't a city without walls because there was nowhere to go when there was bandits, when there was raiders, when there was armies, there was no way to protect yourself. You needed walls to call yourself a city. And the city of God is kind of destroyed at this point. So 
he, he makes plans to go back to Jerusalem and begin to reestablish this space, begin to reestablish uh, what's happening there. And so um, we've been walking through that series and kind of looking at what it means. And really the challenge we've been facing is kind of the, the struggle that Nehemiah is walking through. So he comes into the city, he kind of evaluates, he begins to cast a vision for it. And as we talked about last week, he hits this opposition. Chad really unpacked for us last week the opposition that you face, that ultimately when you're doing anything important, there is almost always somebody who thinks you should be doing something else. There's almost always somebody who's got an objection, somebody who's going to begin to go around and begin to try to recruit people to their side, kind of bring them in a little bit. Like, hey, hey, I need, I need to tell you something. I just have some concerns. I just have some concerns. When somebody tells you that I just have some concerns, you know they're about to derail the mission that you're on. You know they're about to derail the vision that you have because they're going to bring up something that they think is important. And the truth is, it's often important. It's often something that's valuable, but it may not be the most important thing or the thing that you're supposed to focus on at that time. Uh, and so Sambalat and these, and these other nobles begin to kind of create this friction, create this tension, um, because they know that ultimately disunity kills a vision faster than anything else. Um, and what we're going to see in chapter 5 is really where this disunity begins to really take hold. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, flip them open, and we're going to jump in here. Um, so Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, uh, it says this, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews, saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. So what he's saying here is, they're saying, Hey, we need taken care of. Because what's happened is, they have all stopped everything that was happening in their lives to begin to help rebuild these walls. So they've quit their jobs, essentially, and they've thrown all in to put the walls up. And so they're working. Uh, each person's assigned a section of wall nearest to their home, and they're all pitching in. They're all working together, which sounds great, because if you all work together, if everybody pulls in the same direction, if everybody is kind of all playing together, you really have this opportunity. But what they're saying is we are not being taken care of. You know, we're doing this work, but we don't have any support. And in fact, we actually have people who are taking advantage of us. He says we must have grain to eat. We must be able to eat. You know, we've got to be able to eat and live indoors. It's one of the most important things. Um, and so verse 3 says, others were saying, we've mortgaged our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others are saying, we had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, and we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So they're coming and saying, hey, we've already had some hard times here. Things are already tough. Um, they are a vassal state of Persia, which is really functionally means they are a slave state. Um, that Persia has come in and kind of taken them over, invaded, and they are trying to squeeze as much as possible out of the people and send it back to Persia. They don't, want, they don't want to take everything because they want to leave people there. They want them to work the land, but they want all the profits, all the benefit to go back to Persia. And so you have this burden that's already laid on them, and you've had a famine that they're trying to recover from, and there's just nothing for them. 
and they're being taken advantage of. Things were already pretty tough. The land was already in uh, disrepair. It was already in uh, ruin. And now we're all pitching together, but people are still taking advantage of us. They are still taking advantage of us. Others who've already taken out loans on our property, they own our property, they've sold it to us. Uh, they've done, we've done a reverse mortgage just to try to make this work. And we're in a tough spot. So how can we recover? And Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry in these charges, I was angry. Because they are facing this same challenge that we're all facing. Um, The truth is, life is not easy. Uh, One of the things we tell our kids all the time is being a grown-up is, uh, it's not very fun. I mean, honestly, if, if, they, if that was how they would have, if they would have advertised the responsibility that comes with being a grown-up, I would not have tried to rush out of high school so quickly. Um, it sounded like a lot of fun. You get to do what you want. When I turn 18, how many of you have heard a, a teenager say, when I turn 18, I'm out of here? And what you fail to realize is often when you turn 18, it just becomes more and more challenging. Life gets hard. You have bills that have to be paid. You have student loans that are just perpetually hanging over your head. You have challenges that you face. And when you finally get everything going in the right direction, finally have things moving in the right direction, then you have to put a transmission in a a vehicle. Uh, Then you have to face a hurdle. Uh, For us, we tried to buy a house two different times, and both times kids showed up. And turns out you have to pay doctors when you are going to have kids. And so both times we had this little pile of money that we scraped and saved to try to get a down payment for a home. We ended up having to pay for children to come into this world. And, you know, we're glad they're here. They're really exciting. But it just is challenging. And it's even more challenging when dad has set a vision that we're not paying almost three grand for a dog, and then dad almost caves on an impulse because the dog is cute, which is all puppies are cute, but dad just seemed unprepared for that situation. And here we are facing another hurdle because life is not always easy, and especially when you're doing something important, especially when you've committed to a vision that God's given you. Uh, life can really be challenging. And so all of these folks are experiencing this. They, they thought there was this unity, but there's this small group of people who looked around and said, hey, they've all got unity here, but you know what I see? I see an opportunity. I see a chance for me to come in and get a little bit extra, a little bit more for me. And so instead of coming in and saying, hey, I'm here to help, Hey, I'm here to to lean into you. I'm here to support the community. I'm here to offer up resources when it's needed. I am going to take advantage of this. And the truth is we all have this innate feeling that that's not right. You know, even those of us who are pretty conservative like myself who'd be like, you know, I love free market capitalism. I think that's important. The moment that gas prices start going up, I'm like, well, this isn't right. This isn't okay, is it? Um, You can feel this outrage, this indignation, even more so when there's an actual crisis, Uh, when there's a a hurricane and you see stores that are charging, you know, 10 or $12 for a 40-pack of water instead of three bucks at Costco. Um, You see stores uh, that are charging these exorbitant prices. And it's, you know, part of what we would say in normal times is, well, that's the price the market demands. You people are still paying for it at that price. Shouldn't we do that? And that's what is happening here. There's this, people are taking advantage. They're exploiting people who are in a difficult situation. They have these people who are already compromised, who are already struggling, but who have committed 
to what God has called them to. And instead of helping, instead of saying, hey, we've got grain, we will sell it to you for the same price we paid for it. We, you know, we, God has blessed us. We, are, we have plenty of barns. We have plenty of storage. We are doing great. Let us just help bless the community here. Let us just help things move forward. They're saying, hey, you know, it's the price. The, this is what the market demands. You know, or I'll sell you grain. Why don't you, just, why don't you just sign over your family farm? You can still work it. You can stay there. We're not taking your house. We're not stealing from you. But you can go ahead and just jump in here uh, and sign these paperwork and let me just be the owner of your land. And all of a sudden, the situation changes, and it begins to become untenable. Um, ultimately, one of the places that would happen in the ancient world um, is when things got so bad, you would take your children and to sell them into slavery. Uh, you would take your children and offer them up as, as bond servants. So they would end up having to go and work for somebody else, go and live with somebody else in order to help pay your debts. Um, and it would come, become this really difficult situation. And because the ancient world was as brutal as it could be at times, you often started with your daughters first um, because uh, you, could, you, could, you could afford to lose them, so to speak, but you got to hold on to those sons. Um, but eventually even sons had to begin to be sold. And you had this heartbreaking situation where people were struggling um, and they were outraged. And they come to Nehemiah and they tell him, hey, this isn't right. This situation that we find ourselves isn't okay. And we all intuitively know this. Maybe you didn't grow up in a house that listened to Johnny Paycheck, um, that listened to Merle Haggard, that listened to uh, some of these uh, Tennessee Ernie, Ernie Ford's famous song, you know, 16 tons of what do I get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Um, that we just kind of faced with these challenges. That I work and I work and I work, and yet it doesn't seem to get any better. It doesn't seem to move forward. You know, I grew up in eastern Kentucky. I grew up in Appalachia, kind of in the mountains. Uh, I grew up in coal country. And one of the biggest lies that we ever experienced is coal brings good jobs to our community. Coal is what makes this community work. And there's some truth in that. You could get a, you could get a decent job and make some money. But you know where the, one of the poorest parts of the entire country is? Appalachia. I grew up with neighbors that had outhouses. In, I grew up, I'm, I'm 40, so I'm not that old. Like in 1998, my neighbors still had outhouses in the community I lived in. I lived in the city, right next to City Hall. We were just a few blocks away. There was such crushing poverty because as much money as could was scooped out of that community. And so you have this, you have this vision that's been cast, and yet people are taking advantage of it. And Nehemiah rightfully becomes angry. It says in verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Because visions thrive in environments of unity, but visions die slowly and painfully in environments of disunity and division. Visions die in environments of disunity and division. Those nobles didn't come right out and say, hey, we're not going to do this. We don't care about the walls. We're doing just fine as it is. We've, we've got plenty of money. Our kids are taken care of. Our kids are going to the best schools. Everything's going great for us. We don't care. Instead, they pretended that it, they were going to chip in. They pretended that they were going to jump in. But secretly, they had their own vision. They had their own goals. And it was to take care of them and theirs. And you will never win in that environment. It doesn't matter what you're doing. 
doesn't matter where you're at. Um, sports teams, it's one of the things you talk about all the time. If you ever joined a sports team, you had some old coach who stood in the back and said, there's no I in team. We all got to chip in. We all have to pull together. And it's true. If you have one person that is making it about them, it can often derail the entire opportunity. Um, Kentucky finally has had a couple great games in a row. It's been a terrible season as a Kentucky fan. Um, and we finally had a great game yesterday in particular because everybody was playing together, moving the ball well, passing the ball well. Because when you can move together, it helps you to win. I mean, it happens in business all the time. You see businesses where you think that everybody's on the same page. You think that everybody's bought in. But there's a handful of people who aren't. They're just there for them. They're there just there for their own agenda. And so they're slowly undermining the work of the business. There's just enough resistance that they're slowly beginning to create friction. Or maybe it's that they understand that, hey, the whole organization matters, but really, I mean, it's really us over here in marketing, right? I mean, we're, the, we're, we're who really matters. We're what makes the team win overall. And so they begin to push their own area, their own uh, place, their own division, their own uh, agenda, and slowly it undermines the whole. And it begins to eat away and begins to corrupt, and it begins to ultimately cause it to fail. I've seen it in churches so many times. My brother was preaching at a church um, in eastern Tennessee while he was in graduate school. Um, they called and said, hey, we need, our preacher's not available this weekend. Um, we need somebody to come in and help fill the pulpit. Um, and he's like, yeah, absolutely, I can do that. I can preach. I can, I can jump in and help out. Uh, so he got the directions from the church, and he pulls up to the church, kind of a smaller church out in the middle of nowhere, and he pulls up in the parking lot, and he parks and he can see like two or three cars around back. And he's like, maybe I'm just a lot early. And he looks at the email. He's like, no, I'm only about 30 minutes early. And so he kind of sits in his car for a few minutes waiting for some people to arrive. And nobody comes in. And so he goes to the front door. And the front door is locked. So he goes back and sits in his car. He's like, maybe I am early. He pulls his email up again. He's like, no, this is the right place, the right time. Where is everybody? And so eventually, right before service starts, he finally, he kind of has walked around the building and tried all the doors. None of them are open. He finally goes and knocks on the front door really hard. And a guy comes and opens the door and says, oh, you must, be, uh, you must be Brother Lawson. You must be Pastor Lawson here to help fill in. He says, yeah, absolutely. And so the guy opens the door. Stephen goes in, and he closes the door and locks it. And Stephen preaches to four people sitting across a room. And they lock the door just in case somebody comes in that they don't know. And they may tell you, they may tell you that, hey, we're about saving souls. We want people to know who Jesus is. We want people to be united around this vision. But they're not. Their action, their behavior is not. Ultimately, it's about preserving the church, preserving the building, making sure that it stays just how it is. And you can see it over and over again. That people say the right things. They act like they're bought in. They talk the game well. But in reality, they have their own vision. And ultimately, I think that's the place where we have to wrestle with. Do we, are we owning the vision? Are we a part of this team? Are we making it our own? Or do we have our own vision that we're after? Do we own the vision or do we have our own vision? That's the key. Because if we can really buy in, if we can really uh, get our hands around what God has called us to do, it can change everything. And ultimately, I don't know what that looks like for your life. 
I don't know what season of life you're in, uh, what the, the, the opportunities that God's put before you, but I know this. It is so easy to show up and to assume that it's somebody else's job. I, I, uh, I, have, I have loved the season of life that I'm in. I get to work as an insurance agent now. Um, I get to be at home with my kids on the weekends. Um, I was just telling Chad this morning how much I uh, pray for him and how much I do not envy him uh, because it is tough to be the pastor. But I can feel myself in that role, in that place, sitting here and thinking, hey, Chad's got it covered. You know, Chad will handle this. I'll just show up. I'll give a little bit. I'll sing a little bit. I'll shake some hands. I'm good. But we're called to so much more than that. We're called not to leave it to the professionals, but to understand that we are on the team. It's one of the great challenges, I think, for us as Americans. We look around, and we think that we're doing our job. When we show up to the game, and we put on the, uniform, or put on the, the, the fan gear, and we're cheering for our team, it is easy to think that we won. You know, my brother was texting me yesterday saying, I can't believe we're having such a good game. Um, I can't believe that we're winning. This is what Kentucky basketball is supposed to be about. If this is how we can play, I can't wait to see what we do in the tournament. I'll be honest, neither my brother nor I will play in the, in the NCAA March Madness tournament because we're not on the team. No matter how much we think it belongs to us, no matter how much you think your team belongs to you, you can have your Shockers gear on, but you are not on the team. You're a fan. But in this room, in this context, you're on the team. And I have, I have bad news for you if you didn't know that. You are, you're a starter. You're not coming off the bench. God has given you a specific goal, a specific vision and so what do we do? What do we do when there's this division? What do we do when there's this disunity? How Nehemiah responds here is key. In verse 7, it says, I pondered them in my mind. So I want to pause there. It says, I pondered. I stop and reflect. I think one of the greatest challenges for us when we're frustrated, when we realize that the vision is compromised, when we realize that there's some disunity that has creeped in, is we just go complain about it. We might be frustrated about it, but that's it. We might go home and talk to our spouse, and this is what I do with my wife all the time. She comes home from work, and I'm like, let me tell you about the thing I had to deal with today. Just you wait till you hear what they did. And that's all that's going to happen. I'm not going to correct it. I'm not going to challenge it. I'm not going to make a plan. But Nehemiah stops, and he ponders, and he prays, and he reflects, and begins to ask, God, what would you have me do here? What would you have me do here? How should I respond? How should I move forward? And then he goes on. It says in verse 7, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. Do you see what it says? I then, I pondered and then challenged then, and then accused, it says. But he says, I'm pondering, I'm making a plan, and then I'm going to confront. I'm going to deal with this issue. I'm going to sit down head on. And Nehemiah doesn't stop there. It says, uh, he said, he, uh, uh, then accused the nobles and officials, you are charging your own people interest. 
So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to Gentiles. And you are now selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. So you see what he's saying? So he's saying, hey, you are taking our people. You're exploiting them. You're taking advantage of them. You're getting them so in debt that they're sold into slavery. And then we as a collective community are having to go buy them back to bring them back to the land that God has called them to, to bring them back to the community that they belong to. And you were happy about it. Because you're getting a cut. You're getting taken care of. But you're not taking care of God's people. And Nehemiah doesn't do this by themselves. He doesn't go one-on-one. And I know part of what you're thinking, if you've been in church for a long time, is well, if you have a problem with somebody, you have to go talk to them one-on-one. Sure. But maybe, just maybe, it's appropriate to have a conversation with a group. It's appropriate to say, hey, we committed to this vision together. And you are trying to go your own way. We all said we were going to own this vision, but you've got your own vision that you're after. You are pursuing something that isn't of us. And again, it's so easy for us to fall into this. As I was thinking through this and as I was getting ready to preach, um, I could feel it in my own life. And again, I know that it's such a stupid thing, but I knew we weren't buying a dog. And 40 minutes later, I'm almost buying a dog. It's so subtle how much we can deceive ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves that feel like we're on the same page. That church in eastern Tennessee, they are, they are good people. They are people who love Jesus. They are people who are faithful to his church. They show up day in and day out. They are people who have read their Bibles inside and out. I bet many of the folks in that room, those four people that are there, have read their Bible from cover to cover more than once. They probably give faithfully. And yet, the vision that they're pursuing is kind of about them. And that's that's a subtle challenge that we have, is we have got to pause and ask the question, where is the vision? Nehemiah continues, he says, what you're doing is not right. You should walk in fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. And the the people say in verse 12, we will give it back and we will not not demand any more of them. We will do as you say. And so they gave back the fields, they gave back the vineyards, they began to reconcile. They began to set things right. For you and for me, one of the things we are called to do is regularly and consistently repent and begin to realign our life with what God's called us to. And to pause and ask, and to pause and reflect and say, am I really on mission here? Am I really committed to the vision? We as a church are here to help people find and follow Jesus. And I don't know a single Christian that I've ever met that would not say, absolutely, that's what we're called to do. But I cannot tell you the number of Christians who would add to that. But we don't want to sacrifice the truth just to be nice, just to protect people's feelings. But we don't want to put people off. We just want to make sure everybody feels welcome. We want to make sure everybody understands. 
Um, I remember at one point, um, because I had an asset that somebody wanted, um, I would, had some property that we were going to be selling, and I had a church call me and say, hey, the Lord has called us to work together. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't get that call from the Lord, but maybe this is the call from the Lord. And so I went and looked him up. Uh, the church that called me um, was a independent fundamentalist Baptist church here in town. Uh, that is a kind of church that if you've never been to an independent fundamentalist Baptist church, um, you know them because you've seen their clips on YouTube. You've seen the, their, their clips making their way around social media. These are folks who would tell you that if you don't preach from the King James Bible, you don't believe in Jesus that anybody who uses any version of Scripture other than King James is outside the bounds of God. And this guy's calling me and telling me, hey, we need to work together. And I know good and well that he doesn't really think that I'm a Christian. (laughs) He thinks that I am apostate and apart from what God has called us to because I surely do not preach from the King James Version of the Bible. I am not that strong of a reader. I don't read Shakespeare, and I don't read the King James. Um... I will watch, I'll watch a movie, I'll read the book, I'll read an adaptation, but the King James is beyond me. It's not something I'm going to sit and reflect on personally, and it's certainly not something I'm going to preach from. But he, all of a sudden, was compromising his own principles, compromising his own desires to try to get what he wanted to have happen. And I think it's so easy for that to happen. It's so easy for us to fall into those traps. And so this morning, I just want to invite you to look at your own life and to reflect and to ask this question, what would new life be like if we all owned the vision, if we all committed to the vision? Where would we be? And I'm going to go a step further and say, if your vision isn't aligned here, There are a lot of great churches here in Wichita that may be a better fit for you because we are here to help people find and follow Jesus. We are here to help people who may have never stepped foot inside the church before or people who may have been to church for years and have been hurt and wounded by the church. We are a church where you can really come and see who God has called you to be. And if that's not for you, that is okay. Um, We will pray for you. We will speak well of you. I even, as Chad and I were visiting this morning about the message, he was sharing about a couple who started here at New Life, who was bought into the vision. But as the church began to move forward, they realized that it was not who they were. That for them, theological integrity was the most important thing. And if it wasn't neatly buttoned up the way they needed it to be, it wasn't going to work for them. And ultimately, they decided this wasn't the place for them. And that is okay, because we want to be a community that is committed to the unity of the mission, that people belong to God, and we get to help them find their way there. I hope that this is something that's easy for you to hear, that you heard this this morning, and this is all you hear in your heart is, and that's why I'm a part of this church. That's why I'm plugged in here, because I care, because this is the mission, this is the burning desire that God has put in my heart. This is the place for us. I hope that's where you're at. If you're not, if you're like me, and you can feel that kind of secret agenda beginning to creep in, you can feel your own hopes and desires creep in, 
you can feel yourself wanting to pull somebody aside and be like, I have some concerns. If that's where you're at, I invite you to repent, to believe the good news that Jesus has come, the King has come, and nothing will stay the same. I'm going to invite the band up as we get ready to uh, sing our closing song. Uh, We're going to sing, In Christ Alone, Our Hope is Found. That is where we belong. Uh, That is where we align. Uh, That is who we are called to be, Uh, to be synced up in Christ alone. Not with our own vision, uh, not with our own desires, but synced up with him and who he has called us to be. Would we be a church that is unified in the mission? Let me pray for us. Father God, I just thank you so much that we get to be a part of a church that is, is a part of your saving mission. God, I thank you that there are people here right now serving in kids' life, helping with host team, people who came early to just move chairs into place, who love you and love your people. God, would we serve well? Would we commit to the mission? God, for those of us who've begun to drift, um, instead of owning the mission, we've begun to follow our own mission. Would you get a hold of us and invite us back? Allow us to repent and to realign ourselves with you. God, I'm always stunned that you didn't just save us from our sins. As remarkable as that is, but you reconciled us to you and you bring us into your family. God, that you bring about your saving work. God, for those of us who grew up in churches, that when they heard the words that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, they took that as a personal challenge, that it was their call and their job to condemn the world to preach division and divisiveness, to push an agenda that's apart from you. God, would we recognize that you have called us to help bring about your kingdom here and now, that we get to be your hands and feet. As the apostle Paul calls us, we are your ambassadors carrying the good news of Jesus. And God, would we align our lives that way? God, for those of us that are tempted to want to leave it to the professionals, as capable as they are, would you, give up, would you help us to see that we are on the team, that we are starters? God, collectively, as we are here, humbling ourselves before you, I also just want to take a moment and lift up uh, Pastor Chad. What an awesome responsibility you've given him to preach your word, and to lead your people. God, would you continue to humble him and to empower him? God, would you give him the wisdom to pause and to ponder and to confront when he needs to? God, would you give the same to us, the wisdom to pause and to ponder? And God, if it's needed, to confront and to challenge. And God, would you keep us humble to repent and correct and realign ourselves to you. God, I thank you that all of this 
is possible because Jesus came. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have had and was raised to new life. The God, as Paul says, he is the first fruits of what is to come. That we are heirs to that same promise because of our king. God, our king has come and nothing stays the same. And would you help us to commit to that vision and to that mission? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.